The following is a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management. Welcome to Issues That Matter with Edward King, a weekly program featuring interesting topics and fascinating guests. Each week, Issues That Matter tackles the concerns of people across all spectrums. And now with this week's edition of Issues That Matter, here are your hosts, Edward King and Kristen Hurley. Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. It's uh, good to be here today. And just like last week, we have another attorney, a really a special guest. He is a senior attorney for the Institute for Free Speech. Uh, he is a free speech litigator and a happy warrior. That's the way he uh, talks about himself. And uh, we're really pleased to have Dell Cold. Dell, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Happy to yeah. be here. Now, Dell's earned his JD with honors at the University of Chicago Law School. And his uh, background before that was political science from the University of Chicago. And now, being I come from a family of lawyers, I want to also highlight the fact that he's been admitted to federal court bars, not only of the Western District of Washington, but also the Ninth Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court. So this man comes with a really high-end pedigree, and um, we're really pleased to have him on our show. Dell, how did you ever get connected to the Institute of Free Speech? Yeah, so it's Institute for Free Speech, and and um, I just want to make one slight correction that my undergraduate studies were at the University of Washington and my law school was at oh. the University of Chicago, although I enjoyed both institutions a lot and, and learned a lot in both places. Um, so uh, how did I get there? You know, I spent a good chunk of my career, I'm coming up on 28 years now uh, practicing law, and I spent a good chunk of my career as a government lawyer uh, on the other side of the V, as we like to say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that practice changed and um, I saw a uh, position uh, posting for this, a senior attorney position. Actually, it was for a, a different position at the Institute for Free Speech. Uh, that was posted on the Vault Conspiracy blog. It's a free speech-oriented blog, although they blog about all sorts of legal issues. And I applied, and um, I think hit it off with the folks that I talked to there, and it resulted in me getting an offer for a senior attorney position. Uh, A big change in terms of the direction of my practice, moving from being a government defense attorney to someone now who pretty much exclusively sues the government. Uh, but it was a natural transition because uh, I could take a lot of the skills and knowledge that I had developed on the government side, and now I use it to uh, represent people who have conflicts with government entities about exercising their civil rights, particularly their right to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. But you know, when I look at the government and I realize how our government and the Constitution was formed, you know, our government is for the people, by the people, and of the people. So it it seems like there's been a, a, a disparaging separation of the government and people. And I think that that's part of the reason why the 
Institute for Free Speech is so important to get the representation of the people of our country defended. Now, there are many issues that your institute that you're involved with tackles. Is there any kind of, could you give us a list of issues that your Institute for Free Speech specializes in? Sure. So we're a 501c3, which means we're, we're a nonprofit uh, entity, and um, we have a policy side and we have a legal side. The legal side is probably, you know, larger in terms of the number of people that are involved. We have attorneys, a staff of attorneys that are based throughout the U.S., and we, we litigate mostly in federal court, but not exclusively, um, and representing uh, clients in free speech challenges against government regulations, restrictions, or um, uh, other uh, situations where their speech rights have been burdened. We represent all of our clients on a pro bono basis, which means we don't charge our clients for um, our, our services. Um, and that's important because there's a particular need for that in the free speech case, a space. Mm -hmm. um, when you have your typical legal disputes that that tend, you know, you run a mill, run of the mill employment or uh, personal injury disputes, uh, family law, etc., that you know constitute a large part of the docket in any given court, you're often dealing with something called actual damages. So somebody's lost money, or they feel they're entitled to more money, or they've been injured, you know, a medical injury or something like that. And lawyers tend to get involved more there because maybe they'll get a share of the proceeds yeah. or they'll be paid out of pocket because the client, you know, has uh, stands to gain, you know, quite a bit more than they're going to pay their lawyer. In, in free speech cases, it's really often much more about principle mm -hmm. and uh, the, the valuing a constitutional injury can be very difficult. And so often what we're doing really is, is requesting nominal damages, symbolic damages for our clients and requesting that a court order uh, the government to allow our clients to speak uh, or do something you know, related to speech that they weren't allowed to do before. So you know, our role is very important and we very carefully screen our cases uh, anyone is welcome to go to our website, uh, ifs.org. There's a, a link there to request legal help where they can put in the situation, the conflict they're having where they're not uh, able to speak. And, you know, we will screen the case. Um, we do try to take cases that we think will expand, uh, will protect and expand free speech rights, particularly the rights to political expression. Uh, we were founded in 2005 by Brad Smith, who's a uh, former commissioner of the Federal Election Commission. And, you know, I would say the the, the sort of legacy uh, role of IFS um, was to challenge unduly burdensome campaign finance regulations and requirements that were keeping people from organizing politically or being able to speak to in elections or donate, mm -hmm. support the candidates, you know, that they wanted. And that has changed and expanded a bit over the last few years. We still do that uh, type of work, campaign finance work, challenging those regulations. But there's really 
in my view, a free speech crisis in the country, um, and, you know, partly, I think, due to a, a, a lack of a robust culture of free speech. Um, and so we are going into new areas where where people have a need to be represented. So me personally, I've handled a number of school board free speech cases where parents uh, who have really gotten energized in the last few years about what's going on in public schools mm-hmm. are going to school board meetings and they want to express their opinions uh, during the public comments at school board meetings and uh, are in far too many cases are being shut down or censored by school board officials and their lawyers. Right, um, and and that's exactly why we have you on your show. And what's interesting is um, this is you, you came to our um, visibility, if you might want to say, mm-hmm. this Forsyth County Schools win that you had for the mama bears down there. What and part of this that ties this all together for our radio show is Kristen, who you've spoken with here. She's a mama bears radio show that she had before she joined mine. Right. And right, I love the name Mama Bears. It's great branding too. So. Right, so it's a fun one. So, so many gonna, metaphors. So I'm going to let Kristen, you know, pepper you with questions regarding a little background, and then the results of the the Forsyth County School Board issue. Go ahead, Kristen. Yeah, Dell. I'm really glad you were able to join us today. Uh, exactly. I think. Uh, Edward had sent me the article speaking to this case in Forsyth County going, oh, look, mama bears. You know, it it's a national, I don't want to say phenomenon. It's a national um, Irritation movement. to the Democrats. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. So many ways to phrase this. Um, you know, it's, it's happening in every school district across every state. Um, there's no shortage in these last couple of years. I was going to say earlier, you know, your, your dance card must be full. Uh, censorship in so many different ways we're seeing is just, you know, we're up against such an uphill uh, battle. So back to the school boards, though, Um, you know, speaking as one mama bear myself that has been at many school board meetings in the last couple of years, uh, I have been there. I've been there with these ladies that your your firm was representing. So, Mm -hmm. Let's get into the case a little bit here. Do you want to talk about uh, what actually happened in Forsyth County at the school district meetings and um, how your firm got involved? Sure. So the uh, you know I'll I'll try to summarize it, um, um, but basically there were uh, a number of parents. Uh, that banded together in an informal organization in Forsyth County, which is sort of a suburb or exurb of Atlanta. Uh, And they were learning about sexually explicit material that was available in the Forsyth County school libraries. Uh, They would call it pornographic. Uh, And they felt the material was inappropriate uh, for minors to have available to them. So they tried a number of things to try to get the materials removed or have restrictions placed on access to the materials, uh, depending on parental consent or the age of the kids. And they felt that the school administration was not being responsive to their concerns. And so they decided to exercise their right to speak 
um, at the school board meetings to try to, to put pressure on the school board to do something about these pornographic materials to be more responsive, to respond more quickly. And they used a tactic that, uh, that people from all across the political spectrum have used traditionally in the United States. And this is not something that's limited to, to social conservatives. In this case, these mothers were, you know, socially conservative uh, uh, Christian moms. Uh, but, but people from all sorts of backgrounds have used this tactic, which is to, to shame or embarrass the people in power by confronting them with the material that was in in the school libraries that these mothers felt was inappropriate. Uh, so their goal was to make the decision makers uncomfortable by confronting them with the material and by reading from the material verbatim. So in other words, reading directly from the text, not describing it secondhand. And so the, the mothers would you know, come to the school board and speak and say, you know, we need you to do something about this. And let me read from this material so you understand why this is a problem. Um, and the details are, you know, in our legal materials and the court filings. But the school board didn't like that. Um, and there were, you know, what I would broadly call the response was to censor uh, the mama bears, particularly Allison Hare and um, Cindy Martin, who are two of the more prominent members. Um, that censorship took a couple of different forms. They would be sort of interrupted or chided or reminded to be respectful. Uh, you know, when when uh, particularly Allison Hare persisted to read from one of the sexually explicit books, she was eventually cut off. Um, and uh, the second time this happened, uh, she was actually uh, banned from the meeting. Uh, the school board chair sent a letter telling her she couldn't come back until she agreed to abide by the rules. And then they sent another letter signed by all the board members saying, essentially, and paraphrasing, no, we really meant it. <laughs> uh, you, were, you were not civil. You were not respectful. Um, some of the other mama bears, because they didn't want to get banned and they didn't want to, you know, there were police at the meetings too. They didn't want to get expelled or arrested or worse, um, would use euphemisms. They would try to read from the excerpts, but instead of saying the, the more, uh, the accurate word, instead of being true to the text, they would use a euphemism to, to cover up the word that was uh, sexually explicit, which has the effect of making their speech less effective. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's what we sued about, uh, and that's what, what, what led to the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So just for clarity, these were pornographic books that were uh, in school libraries. At what level of the school? Was it high school, junior high school, what? Um, the details of that were not part of the case. My understanding mm -hmm. was they at least involved high school, and I think they called, use the term middle school, which yes. is essentially equivalent to junior high, but there might be slight uh, differences in terms of what grades are covered. I, I do not know specifically whether... Uh, they included elementary school too. And one and one thing I want to clarify, this was a dispute about books, uh, about talking about books. It was not ultimately the lawsuit itself 
was not about whether the books themselves should be removed. Um, and the court was very careful to also say that in its um, uh, in, in its order. There are such lawsuits uh, about ultimately whether a book should be in a in a school library or not, and whether or not removing the book uh, is itself a violation of, of of somebody's rights. But this was about talking about the books. There are people, uh, stakeholders, whatever word terminology you want to use, live in Forsyth County, maybe work for the school district, who feel the book should be there uh, and that they serve a pedagogical purpose. The model bears disagree with that for the reasons that I've already stated. They have a viewpoint and they're entitled to their viewpoint. And what the model bears are saying is that we want to be part of the conversation. We want to be part of the debate. Our view is the book should be taken out. We want to be part of the debate. And the way we're going to get your attention is by reading from the books so that you actually have to engage with, uh, with the material and either do something about it or defend your decision to keep uh, those materials in the school. Um, and the board didn't want to do that. They wanted to censor it because, in my view, it was very uncomfortable and embarrassing for them to have to justify why they were allowing those books uh, to be in there. So that led to, to us getting involved. And uh, you know, we, we ended up suing on behalf of the Mama Bears and, mm -hmm. and were largely successful. It doesn't make any sense to me, just in a broader brush, that you know we we seem to be comfortable as a society with parental guidances in movies and even video games, and yet books in the past have also had parental guidance attached to it. I mean, you know, you couldn't under eighteen or whatever it was buy Playboy magazine or anything mm -hmm, like that, mm -hmm. but yet. The, I, as you've pointed out, the main key here is the fact that the school board was denying parents, also called citizens, their First Amendment rights. And is that a precondition for participating in meetings? This doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's really about allowing all viewpoints to be present. Um, the, the answer on whether a particular book uh, should be in a particular school library is going to vary. Um, and want to emphasize again, the, the litigation itself wasn't about a particular book uh, being in the library, it was about talking about it. But it could depend on the content of the particular book, um, whether, you know, what the pedagogical, arguable pedagogical content of the book is and the sexually explicit contact. It could depend on the age group. And there's going to be some very variability depending on community standards in in uh, the given community and what might be expected or permissible in an, in an urban public school <clears throat> in San Francisco, for example, versus uh, exurban northern Georgia um, might be might be quite different. Um, but the real issue is if you're going to allow the proponents of these types of books. Uh, to express their views, um, then you have to allow critics to be allowed to, to, to weigh in. It may be that at the end of the day that some of the books uh, get to stay and some of the books get removed. It may even be that all of the books get to stay, but it is about allowing the mama bears and other critics who want to weigh in 
to have the opportunity to be part of the conversation on an equal basis to everyone else. And just because they are saying things that make the government officials unhappy or uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's okay to silence them. They're, and as you said, Edward, they're citizens, but they're also parents and they're taxpayers. <laughs> you know, they are, they're, their taxes are contributing to everybody's salary. And as parents, they are consumers of the, of the product that the government service that's being, being offered there. So the idea that an American citizen, taxpayer, and parent couldn't have a role, uh, ability to weigh in on something that, that other people are allowed to weigh in on, that's, you know, to use the language of the left, that's problematic. <laughs> well, we've gotten to this point where we've, you know, crossed, there's so many ways to say it, crossed the Rubicon or whatever, tipping yeah. scales, where these government, quote-unquote, officials, right, the hired help, as I say, right? They are elected to these positions, these school boards. They do work for the people. However, they have gotten so emboldened such that, you know, they feel like the laws are not applicable. And I, you know, specifically in this case, your case summary says that not only did this school board send a letter signed by all of the board members to the plaintiffs, to your clients saying, you're not allowed to come to these meetings anymore unless you behave. They also, I understand, began stationing armed police officers and a security guard at the meetings with one officer hovering nearby when members of the public spoke. Um, this is off of your website, the case summary. That, that blows my mind, Dell, that these board members either are ignorant of the facts of the law, that these people are allowed to get up and express themselves during public comment, or they are emboldened such that they feel like, well, you know, we can have armed guards to threaten and intimidate and silence these people. And, and there are no ramifications or consequences for that. How did we get to this point where school boards can treat the, uh, the public this way? I think there's a couple of things going on. So number one is human nature. I think that for uh, since the beginning of recorded history, humans, particular, particularly leaders, whatever you want to call them, rulers, elected officials, members of the government, don't like being criticized. <laughs> Most people do not like being criticized. Um, and when they are criticized, they uh, often want to shut up their critics and use their power, if they're a government official who has power, to figure out a way to stop the criticism because they don't like it. Uh, it may uh, feel they may feel irritation or it hurts their future prospects of, of maintaining power. Um, and so uh, they, they try to censor speech. That is one of the things that makes the First Amendment so special. And in many ways unusual, uh, you know, when our founders, who were themselves dissenters and, and people who challenged the uh, assertion, over-assertion of government authority, the English king, they were asserting their rights uh, as as they felt they had them at the, at the time as Englishmen to to among other things uh, engage in acts of free speech and to to challenge uh, the English crown. 
So this, this sort of back and forth with people criticizing the government, the government not liking the criticism and, and figuring, trying to figure out ways to shut up their critics. This has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, going back even before the founding, but in the case of America, we can trace it, you know, back to the founding. So this is sort of this ebbs and flows. And, um, you know, my view is this is human nature and government officials, if you let them get away with it, they forget that, you know, you would think all these, these lawsuits and these battles were fought in the past and everybody would remember, oh, you know, you can't censor people just because they're criticizing you. People tend to forget um, and they need to be reminded. Every generation has a duty to uh, to um, assert its civil rights. I like to say civil rights are not self-executing, which means right. they don't they don't automatically assert themselves. People need to assert them, and they need to, in the appropriate circumstances, be willing to stand up and fight for them. And the way we fight in in uh, our republic is or one of the ways we fight besides you know asserting our rights at the ballot box is to file lawsuits um, and get the courts to to en enforce people's civil rights now there's another thing that i think is going on that is particular to the school boards you know we have a very decentralized um school governance system in the United States with these school districts that are, you know, many, many school districts, even within each state. There's some good things about that. It, it promotes federalism, it promotes local rule, it promotes, you know, average citizens getting involved in um, school governance. And those are, those are generally, I think, good things, or at least from my perspective, I think they're good things. We don't have a centralized education system like they might have in countries like, you know, France, for example. Um, but it also means that you have a lot of part-time uh, 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 officials involved. They, they, very few of them have being a school board member is their full-time job. And they may not have a lot of experience being involved in government. Um, me having been in government, you know, I, I learned after a while that even though it wasn't fun, you know, part of your job, uh, even as a non-elected government officials to, to uh, accept and soak up a certain amount of criticism from from citizens, and that's their right. Uh, and if you don't like that, you, you, you shouldn't be involved in government. So they in some ways are new the school board members are new to it um and may not have developed that thick skin on top of that they're sometimes dealing with stakeholders that have a lot of influence and that are uh, you know for lack of a better term maybe part of the school governance deep state um and, and that's going to be particularly superintendents and school bureaucrats who may have been there for many many years many decades uh long before and long after any given school board member is going to be there they also don't like being criticized they answer to the board but but they also uh, often exercise authority independently what we found in particular in this Francis Howell, uh, no, excuse me, that's a different case. In this Forsyth County case was that some of the emails that came out in Discovery showed that the superintendent, a highly compensated individual who makes you know, over $300,000 a year, from what I understand from public mm -hmm. records, 
was law lobbying the school board to essentially restrict the parents uh, uh rights to speak he wanted public comment shortened so there would be less public comment he also was describing certain speech critical of him uh as as being defamation uh, i don't want to go on too much of a sidetrack on defamation law but you know, def very very few things you can say about a a public official in america are are defamation there are probably some things but but there is a wide ability for Americans to criticize public officials, uh, even in a disrespectful manner. Um, so anyway, I think all those things play a role, human nature historically, uh, and also the nature of, of the way we have decentralized uh, school governance, school district governance in the United States that contribute to this particularly being a problem. I suppose you could add to that that due to COVID, the COVID shutdowns, and, and I think parents being upset about that and seeing well, firsthand now what's going on in the schools due to the remote learning or attempted remote learning, uh, you have a lot of energized parents. And so all that is creating sort of collision points, um, and we've gotten involved in some of those. Well, that's a very good point, but it also, if you look at the other side of that issue, is we have, as parents across our country, gotten lazy about participating in our schools, absolutely, our school boards. And in essence, those that had intentions, like we see with this expansion of pornography in middle schools, mm -hmm. is because we were asleep at the wheel as voters, as concerned parents, as actively involved parents. And I have spoken to large groups before and always said the same thing you are delusional if you think that the school your children are going through now is the same school system that you went through 20 or 30 years ago because it's not the same. Absolutely. And, and all the problem boils down to the fact that parents gave up their activity of being participants in their schools, in the classrooms, and certainly in the boards and those school boards that you pointed out, they're all elected officials. So you just rubber stamp them, and then this is the bed that you made. And Absolutely. so it's yeah. not something that's going to get changed overnight. But we saw in this last election in 2022, a number of successes across the country. Which group was that that was deeply involved in bringing up school board? Uh, Moms for Liberty, which Moms I, for I Liberty. believe you right. Yeah, Institute for Free Speech um, is in collaboration with. Um, yes, they've done incredible work, and and I I do agree with you guys. I I say this all the time: is you know we as citizens handed over responsibility on so many levels, and this you know rude awakening everyone is going through the last couple of years, and again getting a glimpse into what's actually going on in your child's classroom through Zoom. There, you know, there's any number of reasons why an impassioned public now is making up for lost time. Um, I do, you know, I do want to get into, I, I do want to hear how the case wrapped up. Maybe we should do that first. And I want to talk a little bit more about how maybe the school boards are um, supported and emboldened by the current Biden administration and the Department of Justice. Um, you know, there's a number of things I think that have led to 
And we'll do that. Yeah, after antagonistic. The break. Yeah, we'll do that after the relationships break. here. Okay, good. Let's, we'll let's take a let break. Let Dell give us the final judgment and and just how it, clarify that final judgment. Sure. There in foresight. So we've had a couple of different school board cases, and we've had uh, a few different uh, outcomes. But in Forsyth County, we did something that is, is a pretty pretty typical approach: is we filed the lawsuit, and very early on, we requested what's called a preliminary injunction, which is a asking the court for an evidentiary hearing and a, a quick look at the evidence and for the court to say, yes, I think the plaintiffs are gonna win or they're gonna win on these issues and maybe not on these issues. And I, so I'm gonna order an injunction uh, while we figure the rest of this stuff out, I'm gonna order the school board to uh, not enforce the policy or allow uh, Allison Hare to come back to school board meetings. So we filed one of those. We had a hearing uh, before Judge Story, very gracious and thoughtful judge uh, in Gainesville, uh, Georgia. And um, as a result of that, the court issued its order on the preliminary injunction. As a technical matter, it was not a final order like you would mm -hmm. have at the end of a trial, but it was essentially the judge saying, I think these parts of the policy are unconstitutional. Uh, and the plaintiffs are going to win. In particular, he said that there, there was a respectfulness requirement. There was a requirement that you could not address board members directly, so you couldn't name their names <laughs> when you're when you're supposedly talking to them, mm -hmm. um, and you couldn't be abusive. Uh, and the problem, of course, you know, abusive sounds bad, but it wasn't defined right. And so, if you're a government official and you don't like being criticized, you call any criticism abusive, right? Yeah. So, so it was, you know, that was being used to censor them. And then they had a very broad profanity provision, which they didn't explain what they meant by that. They weren't certainly talking about, you know, four letter words. They were just trying to use it to avoid being embarrassed by having these books read to them. So he said, you know, all those provisions aren't going to, aren't likely to survive, um, you know, a constitutional review in this case, and you absolutely have to let Allison Hare come back to the meeting. You can't ban her permanently from the meeting and then require that she agree to censor uh, herself, to agree to rules that are unfair to her. Uh, so that was a big uh, win early on. That set the stage for uh, discovery and negotiations between the parties. Our goal in this case was not to, you know, bleed the school district dry. It was to protect the Mamba Bear's rights to speak and to participate uh, on in the conversation on an equal basis. So we were able to work out a, a resolution with the school district that um, we uh, submitted an agreed injunction to the court that the court entered. Uh, injunction is just a technical term for saying it's a, it's an order by the court, a standing order that tells the government that it can't do certain things. And in this case, the gist of the order was they could not enforce the unconstitutional parts of their policy. And we included a, a particular uh, a provision that said the mama bears or any other parent always has the right to read a quote from any book that is available in a Forsyth County School Library or classroom. 
um, because that's ultimately what the case was really about. Right. So the, the court entered that. We got some attorney's fees. Uh, you know, we took advantage of the fee shifting statute that is available to any uh, successful civil rights plaintiff that is able to establish discrimination. In this case, we were able to just, you know, establish that our uh, clients' viewpoints were discriminated against by the government. And so we got, I think it was a little over $107,000 uh, uh, of attorney's fees. Um, that's paid by the insurance company. You know, we're a nonprofit, so we're not in it for the money. But the the expense of attorney's fees is an important part of the message. And, mm -hmm. you know, part of why we litigate is to protect free speech rights. And so we want school boards and their attorneys and their insurance companies to know that there is a potential cost involved in censoring people because you know groups like ifs are out there uh, looking uh, to to defend people's rights and if you end up in one of these cases and end up having defended not only are you going to have to pay a lot of money to your defense attorneys and we don't know how much they paid it was quite probably quite a bit Mm -hmm. But if you lose, uh, you're going to end up paying uh, quite a bit of money to yeah. the, the plaintiff's attorneys. And so the money is part of the message. It's part of the deterrent effect to try to, uh, to send the message. Right. Now we're going to have to take a commercial break, but I just want to make one shout out that your organization is a 501c3 and it relies on support by the general public across the country through donations and any other support mechanisms in which that they can. So I encourage you to go onto their website and um, get connected. Now we have to take a commercial break. So we'll be back. Just going to give a quick break for our sponsors. You are listening to Business Sense Radio and our special guest today. Freedom Fest 2023 is coming to the home of the blues and birthplace of rock and roll, Memphis, Tennessee, July 12th through 15th. The ultimate summit for liberty and financial freedom hosted by Fox Business, Lisa Kennedy. Attend our global financial summit. Four days of investment advice, dozens of financial experts. Early bird deadline, March 31st. Use promo code BIZ50 and save 50 bucks off. That's B-I-Z-5-0. Reserve your spot at freedomfest.com. Business owners, do you want to build a successful business? Invest in your most valuable asset, your staff. Alliance Career Training Solutions solve your staff training needs. Employees need to be successful for you to be successful. At Alliance Career Training, we provide professional, hands-on training classes, including Excel, Word, Business Writing, Outlook, and Sexual Harassment as required by law. Ask about our custom classes for your team. Call 755-8200 or visit us at AllianceTrains.com. All right, we're we're back, and we've got Del Cold on on air with us, and we're going to shift gears right now because even though you had a great win there, we're we're still losing in many not losing, but we're still being beat up in so many different school districts across the country. But it's actually they're not the only issues that we as parents are fighting. So right now we were talking about school districts. And school boards, but there's been a big push from the Biden administration through Merrick Garland, the uh, Department of Justice, DOJ, and then I'll call it as I see it, which is weaponizing the FBI to come up against 
citizens, and and you can even expand it beyond these um, people standing up in front of school boards. And now they're calling them internally in the federal government domestic terrorists. Where where's all this going, Dell? This is this is quite a statement on the part of Merrick Garland that we are terrorists. Yeah. So I mean. I'm very concerned about the information that's been reported about, uh, well, you know, what Merrick Garland's instructions were to the FBI and what the FBI has done to start getting involved in surveilling current parents who just want to speak uh, at their school board meetings. I, you know, and I'll leave it for others to report the details of that. I don't personally have a lawsuit going, you know, against Merrick Garland or the federal government, but I think it's indicative of this larger trend that we've already talked about. People in government uh, like power. Uh, they're attracted to it and they like mm-hmm. exercising power and they do not like being criticized, right? And so this this energy that we're seeing from parents who now had a window into their kids education and many of whom don't like what they see they now want to speak and get involved and the, and the first place of contact for them is the school board meeting where they can go and you know let their opinions be heard I think what we're seeing is there are there are uh, stakeholders or power holders who don't want those criticisms to take place in many cases, uh, that includes school administrators uh, who are there permanently or long-term, kind of the deep state that I talked about before. It can, in some cases, include school board members, although you know those can be very variable because many of them are not you know, long-term and they come in all kinds of different flavors. And they can include some of these organizations like the state school board associations who tend to be there as umbrella groups to support the educational deep state. And they, of course, you know, the National School Board Association was involved with that debacle to get the FBI and the Justice Department involved in surveilling parents. So you can trace a line, you know, it's a dotted line and it's not always, you know, the connections aren't always uh, uh, super clear, but you can sort of trace a line there. and, And I think that these are all symptoms of a larger issue, which is the, they have a particular agenda that they want to uh, exercise through the public schools, um, and they don't like being criticized. And what they're finding is that people have learned, in part due to COVID and, and seeing what's happening in the schools, that this is going on, and now they want to get involved, and people people don't, don't want that. Um, you know, something... You and I chatted a little bit about before the interview started, too, is this notion of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It has a number of different names, um, but I prefer the term DEI. In my view, that is a coherent ideology and philosophy, and we're seeing we're seeing it um, ensconced and, and structurally embedded in a lot of our public universities and non-public universities and also in our public schools. Um, The DEI ideology is particularly prevalent in our schools of education. The schools of education churn out the teachers and the future administrators that go into our public school system. And so they're going already indoctrinated in DEI. They are taking it to the schools. They are then... um, 
uh, indoctrinating the kids uh, with that ideology, the kids already come primed out of K through 12 into the college environment, being hostile to free speech, being hostile to the idea that diversity of opinion is a good thing. Um, and that's leading to some of these conflicts that you're, you're seeing on school campuses, including this incident that happened at Stanford Law School yeah, not I was very long say, ago. It's, it's, it's the law schools is, and medical schools, too, it's that all are connected. really suffering it's, with this. Yeah, it's all connected. But, you know, it's not people don't become hostile to free speech overnight. In the 80s and 90s, when I was in high school and college, you know, people could agree to disagree. And yeah, sure. You know, if you were conservative or libertarian, you were kind of in the minority in a lot of institutions. But, you know, people were were much, uh, much more willing to to have a debate with folks. It's very different there now. Uh, and that you know dovetails with what you said earlier. Um, the other thing I, I want to emphasize is that the, the people that promote DEI really take advantage of the fact that most of us are just trying to get along. Um, you know, we are busy. We are trying to support ourselves. We're trying to support our families. We have responsibilities. We're busy with our day jobs and, and, and other stuff. We don't have time to be, uh, in many cases, or feel like we have time to be involved in school governance or, um, you know, other issues. That really allows people that support DEI ideology to take up the space you know, they have all the time in the world. They're playing the long game, and they make sure that they get their people on a school board or um, right. on, into the schools of education. And so, uh, you know, it's I can file lawsuits all day long, and I I enjoy that, uh, and I I really like what I do. But there's a there's a real role that people parents can play in getting involved with school oversight by going to meetings, uh, and in some cases by running for school board and, and getting directly involved, that will do as much or more that, as than, you know, filing lawsuits. Uh, I think, you know, we need to do both. Right. And, and what I see, and I don't want to step over my Kristen, she's really proactive on this whole thing. <laughs> but, you know, you had said one thing that I wanted to add to, which is there's a big war chest that is financing this DEI movement. And even if you go back to your story about the Stanford Law School, you know, most of us, because I was, um, well, never mind when I was at school, but a <laughs> professor a professor at, a, at Stanford, an assistant professor, makes 145000 where this diversity czar has a salary that starts at 201000 and she doesn't bring anything to the benefit of the students other than indoctrination. To instigate, she was a major player. In she fact, we talked horrible. about this last week on the show. Mm -hmm. I might add, I just saw that she was put on administrative leave. This yeah, paid, paid Yeah, paid, of course. <laughs> well, I think that's right. I think that, that uh, you, you have... A, a couple of things going on now. I want to be clear. I thought her role was uh, very negative, and she was a bad actor. She clearly did not enforce Stanford's speech policies and norms. She clearly came with a prepared speech, hijacked, mm -hmm. and essentially mm -hmm. stole the judge's time. 
Right. So I want to I want to just say that before I say the next part. At the same time, I think what sometimes gets lost by observers um, uh, is that she was in some ways doing her job. When you hire somebody into a DEI position and tell them to go out and promote diversity, equity, inclusion, they have a particular ideology that they are promoting. And those terms, diversity, equity, and inclusion, often don't mean what regular people think they mean. So to a DEI adherent, inclusion doesn't mean include, you know, uh, socially Everybody. conservative Christian mm-hmm. judges or or students. It means, uh, you know, a particular group that is often defined. Uh, they may come in different labels, but they usually call them underrepresented communities. And um, who's in that group not sort of can change a little bit at times. But, um, you know, and if, if you're not including that group or what somebody's saying is somehow offensive to some members of that group, then it's not promoting inclusion. So to me, I think that if you if you create a position of a DEI dean, you pay them a lot of money to go out and promote DEI. That's what they're going to do. Um, and she clearly felt that was part of her job to interfere with and to criticize uh, and hijack uh, this event from this judge who was bringing a much needed viewpoint uh, that was probably contrary to 90 plus percent of the faculty at at Stanford Law, you know, to that place. The same thing is true in public schools. The same thing is true in public colleges. Stanford is a private university. They can be influenced through federal regulations. They can be influenced through alumni and public shaming. But we, as citizens and taxpayers, have a lot of influence over what goes on at public universities and um, at school boards and, and in school districts if we exercise it. But if your school district or your university is hiring a DEI a manager or a dean or uh, creating an office to promote DEI, I guarantee you that office is promoting a particular ideological view. And it is an ideological view that a very small minority of Americans actually agree with. It is a it is a very hard left uh, view of American society. And the DEI people are not shy about pushing that on others. They are not like live and let live types. They believe that... Uh, it's their job to to make people uh, align, they use that word align, uh, with DEI ideology. I like to say, you may not be interested in DEI, but DEI is always interested in you. Yeah, and that's a good point. But here's the point that I'd like to make is, if the school that you're going to send your children to, college, is, is going in that direction, the only thing that you can do, because you can't fix it, is vote with your feet and take your money somewhere else. Because there are good schools in this country, a few are left, that will represent an educational process that will teach children work skills, knowledge, history, math, English, writing, skills that are going to last generation after generation. And the problem is, and I see it as a a business owner and a CEO with a a vast group of friends, CEOs, that what colleges are delivering to the the workforce is pathetic. And um, Kristen, I know you have something more to add to this. 
Well, I have so much more to add to this, and we really only have a couple more Two minutes. minutes. You got <laughs> well, Two minutes. you know, we'll be quick. I just, I, I want to just say that I appreciate Dell and uh, Institute for Free Speech for being out there to, uh, you know, to catch some of this. It's a, it's a line, it's a, a line of defense and also an offensive line. I think that we've got a lot of work ahead of us to take back. Um, some ground we've lost. And I, I liked what you said earlier, Del, that, you know, you, it's the courts and, you know, are, you're able to do your part for this. It's up to the parents to get elected to school boards. It's up to all of us in our way to speak with our money. As Edward just said, don't send your kids to the, the schools that are promoting this stuff. Um, but yeah, we all sort of have our roles to play. Um, but it's a tough battle, and I and I'll give you the last word here because we really only have about one minute. Um, you know, any last thoughts from you, and or you know, how do our listeners support your organization? Well, so first of all, thank you for having me on. I love talking about uh, the First Amendment. I love talking about my work. I really enjoy what I do. I know that I'm doing what I'm meant to do, um, particularly at this time. Uh, in our country, um, but everybody has a role in protecting uh, the First Amendment and our uh, civil rights. And one of the ways you do that is by going and exercising your right in whatever forum uh, that you can. For many people, that's going to be going to their school board meeting uh, and commenting on things that matter to them. It might be in, in other situations, too. By all means, if you get into a conflict where somebody doesn't let you speak and they try to censor you or they do censor you, uh, please get in touch. Go to our website, ifs.org. There's a button there to request legal help and you can put in your information. And if you want to support our mission, obviously, we're always love any support we can get. There's a, a button there at ifs.org where people can donate. Thank you very much. Yeah, and get involved. And in and, and final saying, I have one thing. We need to speak up and we need to stand up because there's no way we're going to hold back the hordes if we don't actively get involved. And Dell, I want to thank you, Kristen. And yeah, we I appreciate wanna, your time today. We really do appreciate your time. You've done a great job and stay on with us until after we close and we can just, you know. Great. Stay. Thank you. Hold on. You've been listening to Issues That Matter with Edward King and Kristen Hurley. You can contact Edward and Kristen through our website, bcrradio.com. And be sure to join us again next week at the same time on this station for another edition of Issues That Matter. The preceding was a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management.